Well, good morning. Merry Christmas. We were in the dark just a little bit longer than I wanted to be in the dark. Um, let me hear you. Merry Christmas. It's great to see you. I love being with you. Um, and if you don't know, Brad and I are sharing a series this month to get us ready for Christmas. If you're new here, welcome. We love you at Northridge already. Um, every December, we try to do a four-part series, the weeks leading up to Christmas, to really get our mindsets and attitudes and perspectives ready for the celebration of the birth of Jesus. And we decided this year to do something called Expect the Unexpected, because if you read the Christmas story closely, you notice that God does something unusual in almost every part of the story, something that you wouldn't expect the creator of the universe to do. And Brad did a great job last week kicking us off. Um, and I want to begin my part here by talking about a portion of the story that you may not think a lot about, but it really screams that God wants to do the unusual. Let me begin with a story. Um, I would say that July 2nd, 1881 stands as a day in American history as one of the most sad and pitiful moments in our history. On that day, President James Garfield, who had just been elected three months earlier, walked into the train station in Washington, D.C. He was planning to take the train up north to do a speech, but he never made it. Lurking in the shadows was a crazy man with a pistol that day. His name was Charles Guiteau, and as the president walked across the platform, he walked up behind him and shot him twice. One grazed him in the shoulder, and the other one lodged in his back right next to his pancreas, and the president slumped to the ground. Well, Charles Guiteau was nabbed and thrown in jail, and the president was whisked off to a hospital where a doctor by the name of Dr. Willard Bliss appointed himself as the personal physician and the one that will oversee the recovery of our president. Sadly, our president never recovered. But let me tell you why. Over the 80 days that Dr. Bliss um, poked and prodded and probed through the body of the president, the bullet that was in his body was never found. In fact, during the 80 days, he got so controlling of the process, he wouldn't let any other nurse or doctor even touch the president. Even though there were several next to him ready to help, he wouldn't let anybody help. During the 80-day period, Alexander Graham Bell came by. Ever heard of that man? He had just invented a metal detector. And he said, I think this metal detector could actually help us find this stray bullet and pull it out. Bliss was really hesitant. He said, I don't know. Maybe that's not safe. I'm not sure. And so when finally Bell persisted and said, you've got to let me try this, he let him try it only on a small portion of the president's body, the right side. And they never found the bullet. Along the way, Joseph Lister came by. And he watched Dr. Bliss do his work on the president's body. And he said, can I just make a suggestion? You might want to wash your hands. You see, Joseph Lister had just developed this theory on germs. In fact, ever heard of Listerine? He had just developed this theory on germs. He said, we have found in our research that when we wash our utensils and our instruments in our hands, the people stay, they live longer. It's amazing. But Dr. Bliss said, that's ridiculous. In fact, he laughed at him. 
and continued to poke through the body of the president with dirty fingers and dirty utensils, dirty instruments. Eighty days later, the president died of infections because they never washed their hands and they never found the bullet. Now, I share this with you. It sounds like a strange Christmas story, doesn't it? But I share it with you because I think in many ways, Dr. Willard Bliss is a picture of mankind. He entered that process of doing his work on the president's body with lots of assumptions, faulty assumptions. First of all, that he had the answers, that he was the only one that needed to touch the body, that nobody else was needed. Secondly, that that when Alexander Graham Bell brings this wonderful instrument in, like a metal detector, he has him use it only on the right side of the body. And, of course, the bullet was on the left side of the body. And he didn't want to wash his hands. That was stupid. That's a theory I've never heard of. And, of course, he needed that theory desperately. And like so many of us, he was a professional. He knew his trade. But he had all kinds of assumptions that he'd accumulated with his experience up to that point. And it kept him from doing a good job. It kept him from succeeding at the very work he had been called to do. The truth of the matter is, you and I have lots of assumptions. In fact, we have to have assumptions. We couldn't live our lives without having assumptions. And I'm going to suggest you and I even have assumptions about God. Some are right, some are wrong. In fact, even today as we sit here listening to this talk, you're in a church. Some of you come to church every week. Some of you are back in church after a long time away. But you're the, accumulated, you're, you're the accumulation of past experiences, conversations you've had, a few Bible verses you've remembered, sermons you've heard, bad experiences with church. Some of you have been de-churched. Now you're re-churched. But you come today with this accumulation, and God is so concerned that we know the truth about him, that we actually know him, that he'll do things really bizarre and absurdly just to shake us up so we're not relying on the, the formulas we put together, but on him. You probably have heard the classic story of the police officer, that after a long, hard day of crime fighting, got in his squad car and was driving home. But as he was driving down the road, minding his own business, a car came screaming at him, swerving from left to right. And when it finally whisked by him, the man in the other car yelled out at him, Pig! We thought, that's it. I have had it up to here. I work all day trying to stop crime, and now here's this reckless driver, probably drunk driver, swerving by calling me names. And it was at that point he decided he's going to turn his squad car around and find this guy and nab him. But just as he was trying to find a spot to turn his squad car around, he came screeching to a halt himself because in the middle of the road was a large pig. I'm just saying. Now, His assumptions were predictable, weren't they? Here's the swerving car. The driver's probably drunk. He's calling me. I mean, after all, people have been known to call policemen pigs before, and he just assumed this is is all wrong. And and finally, the truth came out. This has all happened to you and I before, hasn't it? We think we know what's going on. We have just enough facts to make us dangerous. We start drawing conclusions. In fact, can I say it? Jumping to conclusions. And we draw the wrong conclusions because of our assumptions. Miguel Ruiz is an author who wrote about assumptions, and I want you to listen to what he said. I think he's spot on. He said, if others tell us something, we make assumptions. And if they don't 
tell us something. We make assumptions. To fulfill our need to know and to replace the need to communicate. Even if we hear something and we don't understand, we make assumptions about it, about what it means, and then we believe the assumptions. We make all sorts of assumptions because we don't have the courage to ask questions. And so we sit here today with assumptions about our Creator, our God, our Heavenly Father. Every one of us, including me, have some faulty assumptions based on some things that we've just drawn the wrong conclusions about. And so at Christmas time, God shows up in some weird ways, ways that you wouldn't predict, I think sometimes just to shake us up. By the way, can I ask you a question? If you've read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, have you ever noticed that rarely does Jesus heal a person the same way twice? And one day he just speaks to them and they're healed. Another day he puts his fingers in some mud, spits on it, and wipes it on the eyes of the guy. Next minute he says, walk over to the pool and wash yourself. I mean, I don't think, you know what I think he's doing? He's saying, I'm making sure that you'll come up with a formula where you put your faith in the formula rather than in me. I think that's what he's doing. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to look at a passage, a passage that tells the Christmas story, and I want you just to watch for some things that are different, unusual, and we're going to learn how God teaches us to expect the unexpected. If you brought your Bibles, we're going to read from Matthew chapter 2, and uh, if you didn't bring it, no sweat, I'm going to read it to you, but um, I want you just to listen to this tale that you've heard over and over and over again ever since you were born about the Christmas story, but we're going to look, hopefully look at some new things today. Matthew 2, starting with verse 1. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard it, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he began to inquire of them where the Christ was to be born. And they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, uh, Judea for it has been written by the prophet, And you, Bethlehem, uh, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel." And then Herod secretly called the Magi and ascertained from them the time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make careful search for the child. And when you have found him, report to me that I too may come and worship him. And having heard the king, they went their way, and lo, the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Now, I've already suggested that God will use some paradoxical means to reveal himself, just to shake up our assumptions about him. And I'm going to suggest that one of those assumptions might just be that if the creator of the universe were to ever visit our planet, surely he would do it in the light of day. But did you notice? He comes at night with a star. 
In fact, if you and I were to, to know the whole span of human history, wouldn't we say, come in daylight? I mean, after all, there weren't even street lights back then. Come in daylight. In fact, forget daylight, spotlight. Don't come in the first century, come in the 21st century when you can tweet about it or post something on Facebook or send a picture on Instagram or text everybody or e-blast them or use MailChimp or something like that. But certainly we would come up with some way where everybody would know. After all, God, if you want all of us to know you, put out a marketing plan. But instead, almost in, a, in an opposite sort of way, he comes in a little town, Brad talked about that last week, at nighttime, and the only hint that he's there is one star in the black. Nobody would have expected God to come cloaked in black. And by the way, I just want you to get a picture of this. When we say something's dark today, we mean, well, I was driving in the dark and, until the next street light came along. Or I was moping around in the house in the dark until I popped my smartphone and then I could light up where I was going. I mean, darkness to us is relative. It's dark a little bit. Back then, Mary and Joseph ride into Bethlehem. It's pitch black. There are no street lights. They're probably groping to find the inn. And when they finally find it, the only light that shows up is when the innkeeper opens the door. And there's a hint of, there's a hint of light because a candle's inside. But it's dark. And they finally find their way to this cave where they're allowed to have the baby. But it's pitch black back there. And so God shows up the time, the one time God visits us and spends time, it's black and there's just a star. But do you know, this is a picture, isn't it? Both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, Jesus, the Messiah himself, is actually called a star. You'll find that in the old, in, the, in the Leviticus, you find it in Revelation. In fact, I actually, my theory is I actually think that's why we use the term today when we talk about a celebrity being a star. They stand out. So in pitch black, a picture of the day, here's this one light, a star. And you may or may not have noticed, but in that passage I just read, the word star is used four times. And I think each time it's mentioned, it gives us a little glimpse into a lesson that God wants to teach us about our relationship with him. So if you're making mental notes today, I'm going to give you four nuggets that reveal something unexpected about God um, that teaches about his nature, okay? So let's jump in. The first little piece is, I guess it's really not like you never heard it before, or didn't ever think it before, but I want to start with this. In verse two, we read the words, where is he who's been pouring king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. The first thing I want you to just log into your brain is this. The star represents light in the midst of darkness. Now, I've already talked to you about the fact that he came in black. Again, we wouldn't assume that God would arrive at night cloaked in a blanket of black. In fact, we would uh, uh, suspect just the opposite. He would come where everybody could see him. Nobody would miss him. Um, yeah, he'd be born in the light of day. In fact, can I contrast something real quick? Earlier this year, the entire world heard about Kate and William's baby. Am I right, right about this? I mean, whether you were watching the news, looking for the story or not, we all heard, I mean, it was on Twitter, the paparazzi took pictures, William and Kate had this little boy, George, not boy George, but they had a, 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 a baby named George, I don't know where that came from, but 
they had this baby named George. And, and I mean, pictures were everywhere. If you were CNN, Fox News, if you were on Twitter, everybody's talking about this baby. Because when royal babies are born, everybody hears about it. But that's not true. God shows up, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, and it's really in this remote place at nighttime. But again, it's a picture. It's a picture picture. We have dark places in our life, don't we? And this is where he shows up best and most clearly, unmistakably. In fact, it's almost like God would say, you know, I know it's a paradox, but instead of coming at day when you might not notice my light compared to all the glitzy Las Vegas lights you've created, I'm going to come at a dark time. So you know when you hit dark times, that's when I show up most clearly. Interesting. So instead of paparazzi and Twitter and Facebook and everything else lighting things up, he shows up at a time where there's one star. But notice in verse 2 it said it was his star. Did you notice that? The pronoun wasn't the star, his star. It was different from all the other stars. It was brighter. It was unique. It was positioned just right. And he comes in darkness. But what I'm afraid of, everybody, is this. That God does show up. In fact, I think he shows up in our everyday lives. You may disagree with me, but listen to me. I think he shows up in everyday ways. And sometimes he does things we don't even know. We call it a coincidence or a stroke of luck. Or I had a hunch about that. And God's saying, I was the hunch. But listen to me. We don't see him because he's overshadowed by all the glitzy stars or lights that we've erected. Can I give you a picture of what I'm talking about? Just three weeks ago, everybody in this room heard about the 50th anniversary of the life and death of John F. Kennedy. November 22nd, 1963, exactly 50 years ago, JFK was assassinated. Horrible day in American history. In fact, it was my fourth birthday. I remember that. My birthday was interrupted by this report on TV that the president had been shot and killed. But my point is this. Everybody, just a few weeks ago, were celebrating again the the marvelous presidency and life of JFK and his assassination and all the theories on what really happened. But did you know that while JFK influenced hundreds of millions of people and should be celebrated, did you know on that very same day, 50 years ago, C.S. Lewis died? And by the way, in case you don't know C.S. Lewis, he has influenced not hundreds of millions, billions of people and continues to do so with his writings. But all I'm simply saying is, while there was definitely a notable life and death to be uh, remembered, it it overshadowed something perhaps more significant. Do you remember in August of 1997, Mother Teresa died, but her death was overshadowed because Princess Di was killed just a few days earlier. So we missed it. We, we, we virtually missed it. It was overshadowed. On July 4th, 1776, distinguished statesmen gathered in our nation's capital, and they were signing a document that would forever change our history. It's called the Declaration of Independence. And signing the document day, that day was John Hancock, Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson. But did you know the very hour they were signing this document, the King of England, King George, was retiring for the night six hours earlier. And as he retired, he wrote in his journal, July 4th, 1776, nothing happened today. That's what he wrote. 
Little did he know. And I sometimes wonder in Bethlehem on this day that Jesus was born, if people were writing in their journals if they did that thing. Nothing happened today and God was saying, little do you know. So here's my point. Jesus comes as a light in darkness. Are there dark spots right now in your life? I'm not trying to over-spiritualize this, but when you think about all the compartments of your life right now, are there some categories or compartments that you would say, it's just dark right now. It's not light like I would like it. I want you to know he specializes in dark places. Let me give you the second little nugget we learn. Not only does Jesus introduce light into a dark place, I think the second nugget we pick up is in verse 7. I'm going to read it to you again. It says, Then Herod secretly called the Magi and ascertained from them the time that the star appeared. What I want you to note now is that the star introduces timeliness in the midst of waiting. I'm going to say that again. Timeliness in the midst of waiting. Did you notice Herod said, his big question wasn't, was there a star? He knew there was a star. But he said, I want to know the time that it appeared. And again, my point is this. We wouldn't assume that God would show up if God's ever going to show up on this planet for a certain window of time and that it would be a certain segment that we would catch him and then maybe we wouldn't catch him. By the way, you do know this, don't you? The star appeared, but except for a handful of shepherds and a handful of wise men, nobody gets it because it was a short window of time. You would have thought he would be available for a long period of time so it wasn't just shepherds and wise men. It was everybody. But nope, 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 nope. Even though God wants every one of us to know him personally, There's a window of time the star appeared. For what we can tell from the reading of history and the scriptures, it was a window of a few months, and then it was gone. I mean, have have you ever stopped to think about this? You all know about the star. In fact, you probably have a star at the top of your Christmas tree in celebration of this first star. But it was a few months. It showed up to guide the wise men from the east westward into Israel. And then it was around for a few months. And by the way, get this. It was around for a few months from Bethlehem to the house where Mary and Joseph eventually live. Because the wise men actually find him in a house. But the point was this. It was a timely segment or window that he could be found. Now, it's not that God isn't omnipresent. He is everywhere. I get that. But there are times where God manifests his presence where we can hear him, get guidance from him, even see him in a moment. And that moment isn't just forever. I mean, wouldn't you have think if we were in charge of the marketing plan of God, wouldn't that be cool? I'm going to market you, God. If we were in charge of the marketing plan of God, we would say, well, we want to use a star, but the star is going to follow him around for his whole life. 33 and a half years, there'll be just a star above his head. Everywhere he goes, there he is. See, there's the star. I mean, that would make it easy, wouldn't it? Wherever he is in the crowds of people, there's Jesus. He's the one with a star above him. But nope, it's a few months, it's a window. By the way, keep using this term window of opportunity. Did you know, do you know who came up with the term window of opportunity? It was the folks at NASA. The NASA space space program decades ago were the first people to coin this term window of opportunity. But it makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, who more than the people at NASA would understand sending a shuttle or a rocket up into space, outer space, trying to hit a target that was probably rotating or moving? You've got a window you've got to hit. It's not forever. 
fact, we have to launch it here. We know to get hundreds of thousands of miles away, it's got to hit here at this time. And, and so they knew this is, this is, this is a window to, to do what we want to do. Hospitals and paramedics have their own term. It's called the golden hour. And the golden hour represents that 60-minute period of time from the moment the telephone call comes in, 911, to the time they can load up the ambulance, send it out to the wreckage, pull the bodies from the wreck, load them into the ambulance, and get it back to the ER. They have about 60 minutes of time, or they may lose the patient. It's called a golden hour. And that's what they measure success by. All I'm simply saying is, I think God, and I want you to hear this correctly, not incorrectly, gives us golden hours and windows of time. And it's not that he doesn't love you all the time. It's not that he isn't everywhere. It's not that he doesn't offer you any time you want to come with him on the journey. But there are times he manifests himself. And in this case, it was a star for a few months, and it's gone. Interesting. But it was a timely manifestation. And I believe the reason he does this is this. God is more than just words on a page. He's more than just truth on a page. He's truth in a person. And there are times we have visits with each other, especially good visits, and then maybe some that we miss each other. And in the same way, God, there's a timeliness about him. In fact, let me illustrate it this way. Jesus came at a time in history when Rome pretty much ruled the known world. It was the Roman Empire. Israel, a little country, was part of their jurisdiction. And the Jews were grieving at this time of, over the tyranny of Rome. They were taxed, and the Romans could tell them to do whatever they wanted to do. You know, the first mile and the second mile rule, you had to walk with a Roman guard for a mile carrying his gear. I mean, Rome just exercised brutal tyranny. And the taxes, it was just awful. And so the Jews were waiting for a visitation from God. This is what's amazing. They're waiting for him, grieving, waiting for someone to liberate them from the bonds of Rome. Jesus shows up. I mean, he is the Messiah. But you would think they would all be ready. In fact, Micah 5.2 says he's going to come to Bethlehem. Wouldn't you think if you were born about this time, you'd just say, man, I'm going to live in Bethlehem. I'm going to set up a tent in Bethlehem. And for as long as I live, I'm just going to be there because I know he's going to show up. I'm going to be ready for the timing of this visit. But most people miss it. Interesting. I, I almost liken it to, have you ever been in a situation where you're waiting for an important phone call? Maybe you played phone tag back and forth, and when you're with people that day, you go, I just let you know, I want to talk to you, but I'm gonna, I've got a phone call coming, and I, I don't want to miss it. Has this ever happened to you? And, and you're waiting, and you're waiting, and you've got your, you've got your ringer on high or whatever, and you've you got it right there, and, and you turn away for a split second, and you miss the call. Has it ever happened to anybody? How could I miss the call? I did not even hear that thing ring. You almost want to throw the phone. That's what it was like. They're waiting for the call, but somehow it comes and goes, and most people miss it. Now, not everybody misses it, but it's a star that shows up for a certain segment of time, and those who are ready, I repeat, those who are ready, get it. Can I ask you a question? Do you feel like you're in a place where you're ready to hear from God on that issue you need to hear from? In fact, it's the call you're waiting for, and yet... There's not so much clutter and noise. By the way, can I say the obvious? You and I live in the busiest, noisiest, 
most sleep-deprived, cluttered time in modern history. Would you agree with that? We have to work to get margins in our calendar. We have to work to have quiet time. And all I'm simply saying is work at it. Because God shows up, and if there's so much noise and so much clutter, even though he's God, you can miss him, and so can I. So my second question, my first one was, Jesus introduced light into a dark place. Is there a dark place in your life? My second question is, Jesus introduces timing into a waiting, impatient place. And is there a place in your life that you're waiting somewhat impatiently right now? Here's number three. The third thing I believe the star introduces is found in verse 9. Let me read it to you. It says, Having heard the king, the magi went their way, and lo, the star, which they had seen in the east, went on before them. Now, this is something I think we miss. Did you notice it just said the star went on before them? Meaning, implying, it wasn't just stagnant in one place. Somewhere 32 degrees, this way, 31. It wasn't that way. It went on before them. Meaning, we wouldn't have assumed that God would use a moving star. I mean, most stars that you and I know are stagnant. They're kind of in one place. You know where to look in the sky and see. In fact, unless it's a shooting star, you know a star can be found predictably in one place. But this was an unusual star. It went on before them. Meaning, somehow God, in his intervention into human history, has the star moving guiding them relationally, meaning it was a dynamic part of relating to him. There is a part of God that is definitive. The scriptures are definitive, meaning they do not change. You can go and find verses and truth. There are proverbs. There are, there's teaching on how to live and how to know him, and it doesn't change. In fact, am I not right? We need parts of our life that don't change. God knows everything else is changing all the time. But listen, even though there's a definitive part of God, there's a dynamic part of God that is moving. And he wants you to experience him personally in a relationship. And just like a good marriage isn't just you at the altar saying I do to a partner and it's just a list of things you're going to do. And when somebody asks you about your marriage, you don't go, well, I mow the lawn, sweep the garage once a week, I get the paper out front and get the mail. You know, that's not a good marriage. That's a list of to-dos. God said, I know you're going to be tempted to make your faith a list of to-dos. So I'm going to relate to you with a star that moves. So you know, when I move, you move. And it's a relationship. In fact, much like the Old Testament. Do you remember when the Jews were in the wilderness? You don't remember this. Remember reading about this? Remember when the Jews were going from Cairo, Egypt to the promised land? Going through the wilderness. You know how God led them? During the day, it was with a cloud that moved. And at night, it was with a fire in the sky that moved. And when the, it moved, they moved. When it stopped, they stopped. But God was screaming at us. It's a relationship. It's dynamic. It's mobile. And so while there are things about my nature that are always the same, I want a relationship with you, not a list of things you do. And for most of us, we're so busy, especially at holiday time, God becomes a list and we do all the right things because we're good people. But he says, I, I, I want something that's moving and dynamic. And this Christmas may be even a little different than last Christmas because I'm doing something fresh. And so the star goes on before them. Interesting to me. 
In fact, in verse 11, we didn't read that, but the star eventually stops at the house, and that's where the wise men find him. It wasn't in, in, in the stable. It was, it was in a whole new place. So many people miss it because of this. They don't have time to move around and try to track the star down. Too busy. Herod was too busy. In fact, he sends out the Magi to be recon for him. But the point is this. You today, me today, are we so busy? We don't have time for this moving God, this moving star thing. Just find, tell me when you settle in and then I'll, I'll find you. Or are we willing to move with him? Are we willing to create some margins in our, in our life, especially in this busy time, where we can listen to him and hear him amidst the clutter and the noise? I'm asking. I may have told you years ago that great story that took place during the Great Depression, but there was a telegraph office that wanted to, they were, they were hiring a new telegraph op, uh, operator. They needed to hire one person. And because it was the Great Depression, jobs were scarce. And so the waiting room was crowded with job applicants filling out forms and wanting to get this job. But as they were all crowded around, they were buzzing and chatting and filling out forms. There was young, one young teenager who, who wasn't talking at all. He didn't want to get distracted by any buzz or conversation. So he sat there just waiting. And while he was sitting there in the crowded room waiting, he looked up. And then he stood up. And then he walked over toward the left and opened a door and then shut the door and was gone for five minutes. When he came back out five minutes later, he came out with a big man in a gray suit. And the man in the gray suit had his arm around the young teenager, and he said, all of you that are here for the job, you can go home. It's been filled. Everybody gasped and yelled out, why? How? And he just said, well, this young man just got the job. Because you see, five minutes ago, I sent out a message, a telegraph message. And it simply said, anybody that can hear this, come through the door on the left, and the job is yours. And this boy heard it. He was listening. And he got the job. I think that's how God works. In fact, I wonder if he's saying a lot of stuff to us we never hear. We always say, well, God never talks to me. He always talks to Hazel. He never talks to me. I don't know about that. I mean, yeah, Hazel's listening and hearing, but I wonder if he's saying stuff to us that we just don't hear. And it's us, not him. So my question for you on this one is this. Jesus introduces movement in a stagnant place. Is there any place in your life right now that you're stuck or stagnant and you're just not hearing him and maybe it's not him? One last one. The fourth little nugget, and these are simple, I realize, but is found in verse 10. It simply says, and when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And quite simply, I'm just saying, the star and Jesus introduces hope in the midst of despair. Did you notice it didn't say they rejoiced exceedingly when they saw the baby? It was said, and when they saw the star. It was almost like the star had originally appeared in the east, and then they didn't, they didn't see it. That's why they had to go to Herod and, and so forth. But, but later it says, when they saw the star, the star caused them to rejoice. I've never rejoiced at a star before. I don't go outside, ah, a star, party. I don't, I don't do that. I bet you don't either. But this star was different. And I think, once again, it represented something. The star was this light in the midst of darkness. 
It would been, had it been on the move, and they had maybe had missed it for a while, but now it was reappearing, and they rejoiced with exceeding great joy because it represented hope. Remember, I already told you, this was a very despairing time. And suddenly, the star appears, and it's, it's hope. I've told you before that I have the undeserved privilege of traveling quite a bit, and I get to travel internationally quite a bit. A few years back, I was in Uganda, and I was teaching pastors leadership. And at a lunch period, I was with some Ugandan and Kenyan and Sudanese pastors and if you're, I don't know if you know much about what's going on over there, but Uganda is a, is a hard place to be right now. And a few years ago, it was even harder. There was a war going on. In fact, southern Sudan was in the midst of war, and they were coming south to Uganda to grab children to be child soldiers. They were teaching eight, nine-year-old boys how to shoot guns and kill their family and join the cause. They were taking young girls, and they were just victims of rape and sexual abuse, and it's just horrible. In fact, you, anything you can imagine that's bad, they were experiencing it there. So there I was, this middle-aged white guy with these Ugandan and Sudanese pastors, and at lunch, we got on the topic of Christ's return. You do know that he not only came the first time, he's coming a second time, but not as a lamb, as a lion. And the scripture says he will come with a shout. And one of these Ugandan pastors just said, Deem, they called me Tim, Deem, tell me what you think. The Lord's coming with a shout. What do you think the shout will be? Well, I'd never thought about this. Did you ever think about this? It said Christ will return with a shout. What do you think it's going to be? I mean, I always heard there'd be a trumpet, but I don't know what the shout was. And I kind of made light of it. I kind of made a joke. I mean, that's me. And so I said, well, I don't know. The shout may be ready or not. Here I am, or I'm here, or whatever. But I could tell he was probing for something serious. This was not a laughing matter. And so I finally said to him, what do you think the shout's going to be? And he was ready. In a very sober tone of voice, he said, I think the shout will be the word, enough. He was living at a time where there was rape and murder and theft and war, children being abused. And so he automatically assumed that the shout from Jesus was going to be, that's it, enough of this. I think he might be right. We have it pretty good here in America. But I guess, my guess would be some of you would even say, if he comes back, he might just say to me, enough. I've had some pretty tough stuff going on. It's not been fun. And so the shout will be hopeful because it will be the word enough. So Jesus reintroduces hope in the midst of despair. And my question for you as I close is, are there any despairing parts of your life right now? Yeah, it's December. We like the lights. We like the glory of Christmas. We love Northridge. We love the music, but there's still compartments of our life, I bet you, that are despairing. I want to pray with you. And as normal, Brad and I always like to pray a couple of prayers. I want to pray for all of you first, but then I'd like to pray especially for you that might be here, and this is a little bit of an unusual experience. Maybe you aren't in church every week all your life, and maybe you're back in church after a long time away, or maybe here for the first time, and you've never made that first step with God. 
you never crossed over the line of faith from I'm just showing up and learning about him to I want to know him. I want to invite him to come into my life. You've never done that. If that's you, in just a minute, I'm going to pray a prayer, and I'd love for you to join me on that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I first pray for everyone within the sound of my voice here that this simple, simple story from Matthew chapter 2 would resonate today with us. That where there are dark places, stagnant places, unhopeful places in our lives, there'd be a star. And we'd see it. We wouldn't miss it. Thank you for doing the unexpected, for doing it in a way contrary to the way we would do it if we were in charge. Now, Lord, just be that light for us today. Now, with your heads bowed, if you'd like to take that simple step of inviting Christ into your life, here's what I'd like to do. I want to pray with you. I'm not going to call you forward or put a badge on your shirt or anything like that, but I'm going to pray a simple prayer, the prayer I prayed years ago when I first invited Christ into my life. And if these words represent the desire of your heart, I want you to just pray them phrase by phrase, uh, maybe even in your own words right now. Let's do it. Heavenly Father, I do thank you for what you've done. I do want to know you personally in my life. I want this light in my life that we've talked about today. Lord, I thank you for coming to the cross and dying for our sin. Thank you for the forgiveness of my sins, past, present, and future. Right now, I invite you to come into my life to be my personal Lord and Savior. Lord, I'm grateful for the gift of everlasting life with you. Now, God, give me the strength to follow you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Now, before I let you go, if you just prayed that prayer with me, can I say congratulations? I do believe it's the wisest decision you'll ever make. And um, you got a program on your way in. Mine's on the floor. But if you'll notice on the inside, there's a little flap that has two orange ribbons on the, on the front and uh, the top and bottom. There's a place at the bottom where you can simply check a box that just says, today I prayed that prayer. I prayed to receive Christ into my life for the first time. Now, if you'll just fill out your contact information, we'd like to send stuff to you and just help you get started in your relationship with God. I love you all. Merry Christmas. I'll see you next week. God bless.